I want to give you a hearty welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and today we're going to take a pharmacologic detour on the cardiac exit and discuss adrenergic drugs used in the emergency and intensive care settings to support cardiac output. Don't go skipping a beat. You won't want to miss this. Congenital heart disease gets a lot of attention in pediatric cardiac courses because of its prevalence in the United States and the severity of many of the defects. About 1% of live births in the U.S. have congenital heart disease, which comes to 40,000 annually. And about one in four will need a surgical intervention or procedure in the first year of life. But surgery is just one day in the life of these children, and I want to focus our attention on other etiologies of critical cardiac problems and the vasoactive drugs that provide inotropic support to critically ill children. Let's be clear. Cardiovascular agents are not just for use in patients with congenital heart defects. These drugs are used to support cardiac output, and a patient could have cardiogenic shock for any number of reasons, which also include arrhythmia, infection, or inflammation, among others. Cardiogenic shock inherently refers to a state of pump failure that is not a result of other kinds of shock, like hypovolemic shock, where fluid depletion causes poor perfusion, or sepsis, where peripheral vasodilation and capillary leak lead to a state of shock. Because the pump is broken for whatever reason, the heart cannot provide enough cardiac output of oxygenated blood to meet the demands of tissues despite being in a euvolemic state. You'll notice poor perfusion, hypotension, compensatory tachycardia, and acidosis as your patient spirals downward toward coronary hypoperfusion, cardiac arrest, and death. So how can you impact cardiac output to stop the vicious cycle of cardiogenic shock? Remember that cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume, where heart rate can be regulated by hormones and the nervous system, and stroke volume is impacted by blood volume and vascular resistance. The agents that we're going to discuss today have an impact on the main determinants of cardiac output. Preload, that's the end diastolic volume. Afterload, essentially the resistance that the heart pumps against. Contractility, the strength of each contraction. And heart rate. We can talk about these impacts using terms of the drug's physiologic effects. Let's define some of them. Inotropes act on contractility and stroke volume of the heart. Chronotropes take from their root word chrono, meaning time, and they increase the heart rate. Lucitropes improve diastolic relaxation and decrease the diastolic pressure, leading to increased filling and muscle torque. You can think of it as the counterpart to inotropy. Lucitropy is to diastolic function as inotropy is to systolic function. Vasopressors increase systemic vascular resistance and blood pressure. Vasodilators will decrease systemic vascular resistance, also known as afterload reduction. And lastly, inodilators improve myocardial contractility while also decreasing afterload. But before we can fix the problem, we need to better understand it. Why is your patient in cardiogenic shock? Does your patient have myocardial dysfunction from cardiomyopathy, viral myocarditis, or chemotherapy like anthracycline? Are there coronary abnormalities? 
anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery, also known as Alcapa syndrome, is the most common cause of congenital coronary malformations. But with rising incidence of obesity and coronary artery disease in younger and younger patients, you can consider myocardial infarction in the right circumstances. And don't trust a patient farther than you can throw them. I've seen intentional and unintentional drug ingestions of street drugs lead to ST segment changes worrisome for myocardial infarction. Does your patient have an arrhythmia that's producing poor perfusion? Both bradycardia and tachyarrhythmias can present in cardiogenic shock. Think about structural abnormalities. These are our congenital heart defects or acquired lesions that alter the plumbing of the blood flow of the heart and can lead to poor cardiac output. Lastly, think about the ways that the heart can be impeded from effectively pumping if something in or around the heart was causing obstruction to flow. This can be fluid in the pericardium, placing outside pressure on the heart where it can't effectively fill. Pericarditis, hemopericardium, and pericardial effusion can occur from infection, postoperative bleeding, or postpericardiotomy syndrome. Or it could be something extracardiac, like a tension pneumothorax that's taking up so much space that it shifts the mediastinum and the heart doesn't have any room to pump. That's an easy fix with a needle decompression that we'll talk about on another day. But other obstructions from pulmonary etiologies can cause shock as well. Think about a pulmonary embolism, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, meconium aspiration, and primary pulmonary hypertension as causes of VQ mismatch that can lead to poor tissue oxygenation and heart failure. Your first-line diagnosis is to use serum and imaging studies that guide you toward the etiology. Chest x-ray, ECG, echo, blood gas, lactate, a CBC, electrolytes, troponins, and a BNP are all excellent labs to consider when you're initially evaluating a patient, though you might change your workup based on your clinical suspicions and the known history of the patient. Let's move upstairs to the ICU as we move to the management of our patient in cardiogenic shock. The most tempting first intervention for a patient in shock is to give fluid. Maybe their central venous pressure is low. You're seeing tachycardia and hypotension on the monitor, and urine output has slowed to a trickle. But when you give a 10 ml per kilo bolus, you won't see any improvement in their clinical status. This verifies that the patient is in cardiogenic shock. So how will you manage it? Yep, you guessed it. Vasoactive agents are the mainstay of therapy, along with some other core concepts that include managing electrolyte derangements and acid-base imbalances. To best understand the drugs, we need to understand the receptors upon which they act. There are two types of catecholamines. Endogenous catecholamines are epinephrine, dopamine, and norepinephrine, and these exist naturally in our bodies. The other type is called sympathomimetics, and these are synthetic drugs that mimic the three major classes of adrenergic receptors named alpha-adrenergic, beta-adrenergic, and dopaminergic receptors. Each of these classes has two receptors. So there's alpha-1 and 2, beta-1 and 2, and D1 and 2. 
alpha ones have a key site in postsynaptic vascular smooth muscle and their activation controls vasomotor tone. They're also in heart tissue and this leads to increased myocardial contractility and positive inotropy. So we get a stronger but oxygen hungry pump that gives us an increased blood pressure. But caution because this can lead to peripheral perfusion issues. Alpha-2 receptors can either be presynaptic or postsynaptic. Now the postsynaptic alpha-2 receptors are very much like the alpha-1 receptors, where they're implicated in vascular smooth muscle and they aid in vasoconstriction. But the presynaptic alpha-2 receptors are in the nerve terminals of coronary myocardium and peripheral vascular smooth muscle. Activate these and you get a negative feedback loop that decreases norepinephrine and parasympathetic tone thus causing vasodilation, decreased heart rate, and vascular tone, which can lead to decreased cardiac output. Beta receptors are my favorite. Beta-1 receptors are found in the heart and their activation leads to increased inotropy and chronotropy, which improves contractile strength and heart rate. Beta-2 receptors, just like alpha-2 receptors, have two roles. The presynaptic beta-2 receptors are intended to counteract the presynaptic alpha-2 adrenoreceptors, which leads to an increase in norepinephrine, increased sympathetic and parasympathetic tone, and this all yields an improved cardiac output. Postsynaptic beta-2 activation has two main impacts. One is in the heart, where we see positive inotropy and chronotropy. And the other one that you're probably more familiar with because of our frequent use of the beta-2 agonist albuterol, where activating these receptors that live in the bronchial smooth muscle causes vasodilation and bronchodilation. You can remember beta receptors with beta-1, you have one heart. Beta-2, you have two lungs. Lastly, there are dopaminergic receptors. D1 receptors have key sites in the renal, mesenteric, coronary, and vascular smooth muscle, whose role is vasodilation. There are also D1 receptors in the renal tubules, whose role is inhibition of sodium resorption and diuresis. D2 receptors have key sites in the presynaptic sympathetic nerve terminals to inhibit norepinephrine release, which yields vasodilation. They're also in the peripheral vascular smooth muscle of the GI tract and kidneys, whose activation leads to vasoconstriction. Now that we know about each of the receptor sites and physiologic actions, we can begin to select drugs that will help in the management of cardiogenic shock. Dopamine is the endogenous precursor to epi and norepi, and is a good first-line choice to improve cardiac output. You may have seen it historically used because it's helpful in fluid refractory situations that are associated with low systemic vascular resistance, like septic shock. Some major benefits include that it can be given through a peripheral vein without the need for a central line. It's easily titrated up and down with a short half-life. And it has dose-dependent stimulation of catecholamine receptors. Let's talk about this dose-dependent response a bit more. Dopamine can be given at a low, medium, or high dose, and this dose-dependent response is more commonly seen in children. At each level, the drug effect changes, so it's like getting three drugs for the price of one IV bag. 
I see dopamine most often used at the medium dose of 5 to 10 mics per kilo per minute to activate beta-1 receptors that increase inotropy and chronotropy. At higher doses, dopamine can be risky in certain patients because then it will activate alpha receptors that will cause an increase in vascular constriction and pulmonary vascular resistance. You may see it at very low doses of 1 to 5 mics per kilo per minute, where we have the ideal activation of D1 receptors leading to renal and splanchnic vasodilation. Many times we need to use more than one agent to get the desired effect of improved cardiac output. So let's talk about a couple more drugs that you might see used in the ICU. We'll talk about epinephrine and norepinephrine to round off our discussion of endogenous catecholamines. Epi is a fan favorite because of its great effect on cardiac output. Thus, the reason for its use in cardiac arrest in all of our advanced life support algorithms and as the drug of choice in anaphylaxis. But did you know that it also has dose-dependent effects just like dopamine? You're probably accustomed to the high-dose infusions that we use to get alpha-adrenergic effects to increase blood pressure, heart rate, and contractility. But the unsung skill of epinephrine is its low-dose chronotropy, inotropy, and a modest systemic and pulmonary vasodilator. Norepinephrine is a drug that causes vasoconstriction by increasing systemic vascular resistance. There's very little inotropic or chronotropic activity, and it's the preferred agent in warm shock, where a hyperdynamic cardiac output state leads to hypoperfusion. Well, what does that mean? Well, remember, warm shock involves peripheral vasodilation, a low SVR. So adding fluid to the equation won't improve perfusion to those vital organs. So if the patient has sufficient fluid on board and we give norepinephrine, then that vasoconstriction increases the blood pressure and afterload. You may even see reflex bradycardia in response to the increased mean arterial pressure. Dobutamine begins our discussion on synthetic drugs. It's not a vasopressor like the others so far in our list. Rather, it causes inotropy and vasodilation to increase cardiac output, which is particularly helpful in the coronaries. Its ideal use is in situations with poor cardiac output and high blood pressure, say cold shock or a patient with a dilated cardiomyopathy and hypertension whose lactate is rising. Milrinone is a synthetic phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, but I like to think of it more simply as a peripheral vasodilator or afterload reducer. We get all of the pump, but none of the junk. You see, the mechanism whereby we inhibit PDE3 prolongs the action of cyclic AMP. And cyclic AMP improves cardiac contractility and decreases pulmonary vascular resistance, thus improving cardiac output for the failing heart without the burden of increased oxygen consumption or tachycardia. In the systemic vasculature, PDE3 inhibition results in increased intracellular calcium that results in vasodilation and decreased systemic vascular resistance. One final pro of this drug is its leucotropic effect that aids in myocardial relaxation during diastole and increases filling. There are some important clinical considerations when using milrinone. 
First, some centers might use a loading dose to see effects of the drug more quickly due to its long half-life of two to three hours. On the same vein, when discontinuing or weaning the drug, it'll take the better part of a shift to determine whether a patient tolerates it. Phenylephrine, in my experience, is almost exclusively used to medically treat TET spells in patients with Tetralogy of Fallot. Remember that in these TET spells, there's an acute decrease in systemic vascular resistance that causes an increase in right to left shunt across the VSD, sending more deoxygenated blood out to the periphery. So we have worsening hypoxia and acidosis, which causes increased respiratory effort with deep, rapid breaths that increase the systemic venous return of that already deoxygenated blood. And this vicious cycle shunts it all across the VSD all over again because there's also a high pulmonary vascular resistance. When a parent is at home and their child has a tantrum that throws them into a test spell, we tell them to put their knees to the chest to increase systemic vascular resistance. But in the PICU, we have the benefit of having phenylephrine at the bedside in case of those pesky drops in systemic vascular resistance. Phenylephrine increases SVR and improves pulmonary blood flow without any inotropic properties. There are two more drugs I wanna discuss that belong in their own class for unique reasons. The first is digoxin. Back in my day, we used this drug a lot, but there are now alternatives to digoxin that make its toxicity not worth the risk. Digoxin is a sodium-potassium ATPase inhibitor that increases the force of myocardial contractions and is particularly helpful in heart failure and arrhythmias. But remember that caution about toxicity? The same drug can also cause arrhythmias, among many other gnarly side effects some of which can be lethal. My favorite fun fact about digoxin is that it naturally occurs in the homeopathic plant extract foxglove. You can see signs of digoxin toxicity in Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night because he painted yellow halos around objects, and this is a common side effect of digoxin. Lastly, vasopressin, aka antidiuretic hormone, gets its own category because it has its own vasopressin receptors. We all know vasopressin promotes free water retention in the kidneys, and you may have used it in different doses to treat diabetes insipidus. But it also has vasoconstriction effects and positive inotropy in cardiac myocytes. But caution, because high doses can lead to tissue ischemia. It's particularly helpful in refractory vasodilatory shock when other options have failed. So what's the goal of giving these drugs? You want to see signs of improved cardiac output, an improving heart rate and blood pressures, kidney reperfusion yielding urine output, a downward trending lactate, improved capillary refill and pulses, and normalizing mixed venous saturations. Each patient's needs and response to vasoactive agents will be like a snowflake, needing individual consideration, attention, and titration to effect. This is certainly not an exhaustive list of medications to use in poor cardiac output states. I mean, I didn't even touch on sildenafil, calcium, or steroids. 
And there will be times when no matter what you throw at the patient, mechanical ventilation or ECMO is in their future to allow the heart and lungs to rest through mechanical support of ventilation and or circulation. By doing either of both of these interventions, we can reduce oxygen demands on the heart. But the great news is that as a part of the large multidisciplinary team, you'll consult with intensivists, cardiologists, pulmonologists, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, nurses, and a whole slew of other healthcare providers that will keep your patient's outcomes as the top priority. I learned quickly in the ICU never to tell a family that everything is going to be okay because, well, sometimes it's not. And that's a conversation for another day. What I want you to do is make sure that you understand the physiology of your patient, the pathophysiology of disease, and the pharmacology of cardiovascular agents used to reverse the impact of disease so that you can expertly manage your patient with cardiogenic shock. I'd like to give a big thank you for my copy editor on this episode, Amanda Willis, a wonderful former classmate and friend of mine. She's a pediatric nurse practitioner in inpatient cardiology, where she serves as the associate medical director of the cardiac patient care unit and assistant director of cardiac, renal, and pulmonary advanced practice providers. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PZNP, where I try to pump you up with evidence-based concepts to make your blood flow. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PZNP. Find me on Instagram at the PZNP podcast. You can see show notes and references to this episode and all of my prior episodes at www.thepzenp.com. I'd love to hear from you on any questions or comments you have, so feel free to email me at thepedsnp at gmail.com. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.